Hello again, everyone, and welcome to it. It is the Derek Hunter Podcast for the day, two days after the, it's for Thursday's show, but it's coming out Wednesday, one-ish, whenever I edit it together. Um, talk to, going to talk to uh, Sean Parnell, going to talk to him on the radio, going to slap that interview at the end of this, because I want to find out when the hell goes on and went on in Pennsylvania, what a disaster it has been. So I'm going to repurpose that from radio to this. Uh, Sean, such a good guy should have been him were it not for the absolute total smear job against him so by republicans of course by republicans and they get dr oz and how did that work out again you lose to uncle fester but what uh, what the hell it's not all bad news there's reason i'm optimistic which is not normal for me i'm optimistic there will be plenty to talk about in the week in and review though i'll tell you that much I'm already getting emails. Is that going to, you going to do that or any chance of doing that early? Probably not just because I got a lot of stuff I got to do, but it'll probably be long. Certainly be angry and filthy because it's like watching morons. Somebody with a tap and putt, tap and putt for the masters. And they go, give me the driver. What do you mean? Give me the driver. Stand back. Watch this drive. Just tap it in. You win the master. No, no, no. I know better than you. And I probably will tick off a bunch of you. Say, whenever I, whenever I am critical of certain aspects of the Republican Party, I do see it. The people, the emails come in telling me they can't listen anymore, and how dare I do this? The guy who, uh, when I made a joke about Mike Lindell and his slippers, the slippers once they're gone, they're gone. So don't get them now while you can, because they'll be gone forever. And then, like, we got more in stock. How did you get more in stock? Well, it's because you were never going to not make them. If they're selling, you're never not going to make them. And somebody emailed me and said, how dare you make fun of Mike Lindell? I'm like, everybody is worthy of making fun. And he quit Patreon. He's like, I'm not going to support you then. Like, well, I can't stop you. And uh, quite frankly, it was only a matter of time if you were going to get that upset about a joke that I was going to say something that, um, you know, you're that sensitive. In this episode, I will talk about President Trump and his, uh, shall we say, shortcomings. Uh, this election cycle. And some of you are going to get mad, and I know it, and I, I have to say it because it's what I believe. It's what I know. It's what I think. Um, so just be prepared for that. And uh, I bet you some people will quit Patreon, quit supporting the show. I can't be the show that just tells you what you want to hear. I wouldn't want to listen to it, and I can only do a show I would listen to. So just know that going in. If you would like to make up the difference and support the program, patreon.com slash Derek Hunter Podcast or DerekHunter.locals.com. You can enter to win the signed uh, Judge Janine book or the signed uh, Gene Simmons book. They're up against Judge Janine versus Gene Simmons. That's a group a band you probably never thought would get together. But, uh, yeah, want to get to it. I'll probably do these shows early postings uh, just so they're as relevant as possible for the rest, of the rest of the week and back to normal. Hopefully we'll have some results from these states that can't count. They don't even have to count. They just have to let the machine count by the end of the week. I'll just tell you, not all hope is lost. Don't worry about it. But there does need to be a reckoning with a lot of things. We'll get into all of it. 
I ever when I was a kid, there were my parents were parents, right? They didn't say well, whatever gender you are, you want to do this, that, and the other thing. It's fine. No, they were not. They were real American parents. And uh, there was something called the the day after. I don't know if you remember this or not, but it was about nuclear war with the Soviet Union. That's it. I'm part of that generation that now now nobody knows anything about nuclear war. They don't even think about it. And you sit there and you got saber rattling about nuclear war and people just go da 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 Worried about, uh, you know, that you drive a car while Vladimir Putin is threatening nuclear war. Well, when I was a kid, there was a possibility. We didn't do like nuclear war drills. I think we were past the point where elementary school kids go out into the hallway and cover their head and their groin and go, this will be how you survive a nuclear blast. But there was still the tension there up until 1989. That uh, 91, was it 89 when the wall fell? 91, I think, when the Soviet Union finally completely crapped out. But, um, or 90. But uh, there was that, that threat. And there was something called the, uh, the day after. I think it was a mini series. My parents wouldn't let me watch it. I don't know that I wanted to watch it. I was pretty young at the time, but they would, like when it was on, it, there were certain things that when they were on TV, I was sent out of the room. My parents didn't go, well, we're going to record this on the VCR and we'll watch it later. Like, no, this, we're going we're gonna to watch this. And you're not. So get out. So I had to like go to bed or go do something else and not watch this because they were afraid that it would scare me, the idea of a nuclear war. I think I've seen, I think I watched it in uh, the early 2000s, late 90s, something like that. And it, I mean, it was the mid 80s. It was made by a whole bunch of people who were uh, hating Ronald Reagan. I just remember thinking, well, as a kid, I probably wouldn't have understood it. And uh, as an adult, technology, special effects, and storytelling and movies had advanced so much that uh, it was laughable by the time I got to see. I think Jason Robards was in it, if I remember correctly. But uh, it was one of those things where you're just like, this is uh, one of those made-for-TV moments back when this was in the early days of cable, at least the early days of my family having cable. We were, I can't say we were late adopters. We just didn't get it for a long time. Not, I think it was too expensive, but eventually we got it. And uh, it was just... People still watched. The major network still mattered. It was an event. And the day after was, I don't know, two, three, four days, something like that. Well, now we're in the day after, the day after the election. And now you see why I don't make predictions. I get asked my predictions. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think this, that, and the other thing? I don't do it. There are a lot of people out there who do it. And what I really am curious about is will there be a reckoning for those people? For the people who made declarative statements? You can find them on the right and the left. It's more pronounced on the right right now simply because of the way it looks like things are shaking out. Still, by the way, at the end of the day, you could end up with Republican control of the Senate, long shot, and the House, probable. But still, not certain. I personally don't care by how much Republicans take the House, if Republicans take the House. There are a lot of people going, well, McCarthy should be upset. Republicans should be upset. Blah, blah, blah. Upset. A small mark. 
My dad always said, it doesn't matter if you win by one or one million. It's still a W. I don't really care by how many votes. It'd be nice to have a bigger margin, but it doesn't really matter how much it ends up being by if as long as it ends up being, right? Because there was nothing that Republicans were going to be able to do legislatively to turn anything around, to change anything, to really do all that much. So I didn't care. It's a point of, it's a matter of putting your foot on the brake, Putting your foot on the brake, that's what Republicans can do to Democrats. They'll hate it. It'll be better for the country. But that is what Democrats are trying to prevent. If they get the House and the Senate, they are going to ram through whatever it is they want to ram through. That was what they had promised us, by the way. That is what they swore up and down they were going to do. Give us the Senate, give us two more votes in the Senate, they said, and we will change the filibuster rules so we can ram through whatever we want. Well, then the Senate becomes the House of Representatives. That's the true threat to your liberty. That is not what democracy looks like. So if we can stop that, great. That's what I care about. There was never going to be, well, we're really going to ram through some legislation that's going to make Joe Biden. Joe Biden's not going to sign it. Joe Biden's going to veto anything that the Republicans put through. It didn't matter if Republicans won 300 new seats in the House or 10. It didn't matter if Republicans took the Senate by five votes or remains 50-50. It doesn't matter. Joe Biden was not going to come around to going, you know what, we're going to, we're going to really un, un, unburden and free up the, uh, the oil and gas industry. We're going to strive for energy independence. We're going to bring nuclear back. We're going to, no, Joe Biden is promising to shut down coal plants. He's still promising to shut down coal plants. Nothing is going to dissuade him from that because that's what he wants period, end of story. So stopping things from getting worse are all that really mattered. That's still a possibility. I'd like to point out, though, how ridiculous it is that we cannot count votes in the course of one night. It is really bizarre. It's also bizarre. We're sitting here going, uh, hey, man, Pennsylvania, we're not going to know the results for days and days and days. And then Fetterman hops out to a small lead and they go, oh, that's it. Fetterman wins. Meanwhile, here in Maryland, look, everything pretty much statewide was kind of a foregone conclusion. Hate to be Debbie Downer, but that's just how it was. Dan Cox didn't run a very effective campaign. The, the governor, Larry Hogan, sort of crapping on him didn't help. But the Republican establishment, the party in this state is so pathetic that they couldn't muster anything or just wouldn't muster anything for matters of personal personal reasons. So they left him out there. But I'll tell you, as bad as Dan Cox's signs were like, Trump endorsed, Trump endorsed, Trump endorsed. That works in the primary, I guess. He won the primary. They stayed up during the, the general election. That's not going to help you in the general election. I'm sorry to say, but it is not going to help you in the general election. 
I would say that, well, he countered it with a whole bunch of ads or personal appearance, but he didn't. I tried hard to get him on the radio. My producer, Gary, tried hard to get him on the We offered him an hour, an hour, unfettered, come in, take phone calls, free advert. You can't buy that. Well, you can buy that kind of advertising, but you not. it's you know better when you don't have to. It was a free hour. Come on in. The water's fine. And it was logistically impossible to make happen. Well, we can't. We couldn't possibly. We won't be able to do anything in these next two weeks. What do you mean you won't be able to do anything for the next two weeks? We asked three weeks out. Come on in. You pick the day. You pick the hour. We'll make it happen. Uh, can't really. It's not really working. What is he doing? Did you see Dan Cox around the state? I didn't see Dan Cox around the state very often. He came to the uh, Freedom Rally that the station put on. That was it. It's the only time I saw. He did go into the station and do the morning show one time. And then his people the day before saying, hey, we're going to be in the station. Uh, we can just come and uh, do your show immediately after. And it's like, no, that's that's terrible radio. Look, by, if the hour you did on the morning show just before the start of my show you covered everything, right? Why would you repeat it? The same, that's overkill. It's bad radio on top of it. So he said, no, like any other day, come on, let's do this. And no, we couldn't, they could not work it out. Well, they would not work it out. So the result being a blowout was not a particular surprise. Larry Hogan is sitting there probably in Annapolis, very proud of himself, patting himself on the back. Well, as much as he can reach his own back. I don't know if she can, he can reach around that much. Patting himself on the back, going, oh, I defeated that, that Trump guy. Well, congratulations. You also took a giant dump on your own legacy there, uh, Larry, because your legacy, to any extent that it matters, and to any extent that it might possibly run risk of appealing to anybody inclined to vote for a Republican is about to be wiped out. Do you think Wes Moore is going to let any of it slide? No. Not going to. Your taxes are going to go up. So, oh, I kept your taxes low. Big deal. Big deal. That's what you're expected to do. Anything else, it's just gone. It's just gone. But what's weird to me is I'm looking at the Associated Press results. Let me refresh this page. Because you have to sit there and wonder how in the hell does it take so long to count? We have one seat that really could flip here in Maryland, the awful David Trone, who exploited the death of his own nephew. He had a lot of campaigns about people's deaths and suicide. It's gross. It was really a gross campaign. Meanwhile, he was accusing Republican challenger Neil Parrott of wanting to tattoo people with AIDS, basically comparing him to a Nazi. David Trone uh, self-financed his campaign. He uh, is a multi-multi-hundreds of millions of dollars guy. And uh, he also doesn't live in the district. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't live in Maryland's 6th district anymore. He lives in a mansion on an estate in Potomac, Maryland. And... Uh, He's thinking he can buy the seat. Maybe he can. But for some reason, hours after 12 hours, more than 12 hours after the polls have closed, only 73% reporting? How the hell is that even possible? 
the hell is going on? 73% reporting. Neil Parrott is sitting at uh, 51.1%. David Trone is at 48.9%. How do you not count those votes? Actually, I've said it before, and I have to keep reminding myself of it because it seems intuitive, but you don't count. They don't count. Humans do not count. Humans do not add. Humans read numbers. Machines do the counting. There's no excuse whatsoever for being sitting at 73% of the vote counted, except for government incompetence. Now, this is out in Frederick County. It is a red-ish area. Mike Huff, who I had on the radio show, was, uh, looks to be the new winner of the county executive race, and good for him. So there's a bright spot out there for conservatives. But how in the hell can you not count votes? And this is the same all across the country. They're having difficulty counting votes. They're not really having difficulty counting votes because nobody's counting the votes. Somehow they're slow walking the results. Out in Arizona, what's going on in Arizona? Who knows? Out in Georgia, who knows what's going on? Looks like there's going to be a runoff down there. It'd be nice if they could just get their act together, count these, read the numbers the computer said. Nobody gets to 50%. All right, let's go. Runoff election December 6th. But it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad for conservatives. It was bad for conservative pundits. But it wasn't all bad for conservatives. There's still a chance in the Senate. There's still a chance in the House. There's still a chance. It doesn't matter if you hold the House by uh, one or 100 seats. 100 seats would be nice, but one will work. One will work. Keep that in mind. So while where you live might not have worked out as well as you might have expected, unless you live in Florida, we'll get to that. My God, what a... What a time to be a DeSantis, because while, and this will be controversial, and I can already predict the hate, but I got to tell you what I'm thinking. I got to tell you the truth as I see it and the truth as I know it. Yesterday was a horrible night for Donald Trump. It was an awesome night for Ron DeSantis. And I know many of you are sitting there going, well, you always speak highly of Ron DeSantis. Yes, I tend to speak highly of all the conservatives out there, all the Republicans out there, because I, that's what I am, right? I will take any Republican over every Democrat or every Republican over any Democrat, however you like to phrase it. But you also have to reflect the reality of what you see. Ron DeSantis <laughs> overperformed, is putting it mildly. So did Marco Rubio. The two of them together down in Florida carried a whole bunch of blue seats in the house, turned them to red, made a huge difference. And they won places where Republicans haven't won in your lifetime. And they did so by convincing margins. We'll get to all of that as we look at the day after. But it's worth noting that both sides were wildly wrong. Both sides on the cable news front, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this, spent their time telling their audiences what they wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. Will there be any consequences for that? Sadly, I don't think so. 
I know there's some people listening and they're going, well, Derek, how can you be uh, sort of upbeat? I, why aren't you so negative? Why aren't you down? Why aren't you? Because, first of all, it's not over. I am one of those people who, with every fiber of my being, just wants to fight till the very end. That's, I am uh, the last person to uh, turn off the light. You got to turn off the light on me. I'm not going anywhere. I don't. I don't give up. And you know what? I've always said, and I'll keep saying it, no matter what happens ultimately with the House and the Senate, this election is not a finish line. This election is a checkpoint. It's a checkpoint. Period. End of story. I am a firm believer in you just keep going. You keep plowing. All right, this is the reality right now. You don't like it, change it. Fight, keep working to change it, period, end of story. You don't go, well, that's it. It's all over. Now, there are certain things that could get more difficult than uh, they otherwise would have been, depending on the, the outcome of the remaining races, but so what? If you ever thought it was going to be a cakewalk or you really demanded it to be a cakewalk, you're in the wrong business. You're in the wrong country. You're in the wrong line of thought. It's just not how the world works. No victory is permanent and neither is any loss. It just isn't. Look at, and I know the left is going crazy today with, oh, it was a portion that, that did this, a portion to, uh, on the ballot across the states, across the country. It really helped Democrat turn. Maybe it did. I don't know. But that doesn't mean you should have said, well, I, if only the Supreme Court, man, I wish the Supreme Court would have kept Roe v. Wade in place. No matter what your feelings are morally on abortion, Roe v. Wade was a horrible decision. It was a terrible decision from a constitutional standpoint. It should never have been. It is gone. And if you're a conservative who talks about the concept of federalism, this is exactly how it should happen. Is it a good thing that these states all said, no, abortion on demand everywhere? No. But it's a better thing than the federal government decreeing it through the Supreme Court. All right? That's just how it works. You have to be a fan of federalism, even when you lose. You know, the left the left always screams, this is what democracy looks like. It's a threat to democracy. They care about their democracy. And then when they win, our democracy is fine. When they lose, they challenge the democracy. Oh, democracy, we must sue. We must try to change things. They don't mean it. I mean it when I talk about federalism. Whatever the states decide, the states decide. But the states should be able to decide. You get it, that concept in people's head on abortion, then you can put that concept in people's head about a lot of other things. And then you maybe get the concept, and the real dangerous concept for the left is people thinking, why is the federal government involved in this, whatever this happens to be, in the first place? then you can really start changing people's minds or at least opening them a little bit. But you can't do it if they don't understand or accept the concept. The left's like, oh, they're going to be outlawing abortion everywhere. They're going to be outlawing abortion everywhere. The left won a whole bunch of referendums on abortion. That's the reflection of the will of the people in those states. You can talk about the morality of it all you want. That's irrelevant. The majority rules. The minority wants to change it. The majority is going to. The minority is going to have to work their butts off to change it. Period. End of story. But the Constitution wins no matter what. 
That's what the federal government is supposed to be about. That's what conservatism is supposed to be about. On a federal level, anyway. So I look at these things and I don't see defeat. I don't see something to get upset over. It's certainly not something to be proud of, but it's it's not over. Like I said, if you win by one or one million, it doesn't matter. It goes down as a W. You can find things on both sides of the aisle to be disgusted by, to be upset over, to be whatevered about. You absolutely can. If you are a conservative, you look around and you look at what the pundits and the pollsters and everything, oh, they were all wrong. They were. All, there comes a certain point where they're just lying to you. They're just lying to you. This one, you're going to win. You're going... I hope you win and you're going to win are two different things. It would be nice if the political class, the commentariat, the uh, really, frankly, most other radio shows and podcast hosts and columnists in the world would all learn the difference between the two. It would be nice. Yeah, there's going to be a huge red wave. It's going to be a red tsunami. It's going to do... No, you don't. You don't do. If you were already good at predicting the future, you would have won the lottery by now, right? You would have, and then you would, you wouldn't be writing your columns. You wouldn't be hosting your show. You wouldn't be on. You wouldn't. I'd hope you'd have better things to do, or things you wanted to do, more than that. There's a difference between what you want and what you know. And if you're telling your audience something is going to happen in the future, you're lying to them, either by. Uh, being overly enthusiastic or deliberate. I don't know. These people, you know, they're looking at the same polling data that we have. Although there was one weird thing last night watching Fox News. They had a briefing. Uh, who, I think it was maybe Martha McCallum sort of accidentally let the cat out of the bag. They had a briefing from their polling team about what to possibly expect during the results. And they had the eight people out there. I think Martha sort of let this slip. She said, and this was later on in the evening in like 10, 11 o'clock. She said that um, they said that this could be anywhere between a very narrow Republican victory in the House to up to 30 seats. And this is in keeping when it was going and the Republicans were not doing as well as uh, the Fox audience had been told they would. They said, uh, you know, this is in keeping with the, the briefing that we got on our polling data and the polling we had internally over the past week. And I'm thinking it was that list, last bit that got me, the pa over the past week. Now, I don't know if they were briefed on it every single day or if they just did whatever they did. They showed them a week's worth of polling in their final briefing. And I'm thinking if this is not the red wave that, quite frankly, the network was pushing quite a bit. And it was in the polling data for quite some time. Why did it not make air? Why did it not make air? Now, I don't watch a lot of Fox. I don't watch Fox during the day. I uh, will turn on The Five, which I don't really expect much news from. It's just on while I cook. And then uh, I watch Brett Bear. I did not see that anywhere on there. I'll dip in and out, especially as the election gets closer. I'll dip in and out of their primetime lineup. 
but I don't watch anything consistently, and I never watched everything all the way through. I usually stick around until they have the first, you know, guest who's, you know, some random radio host or something. Some somebody has nothing to do with the news, and I just click to anything else. But um, I never heard that this was even a possibility. If there was internal information, internal data at Fox that showed that this was a possibility, the outcome that we're experiencing was a possibility, why didn't that make it on air? More importantly, why would they allow their hosts to declare things to be done, telling certain candidates, oh, you're going to win, you're going to win easily, and saying things like Patty Murray is in danger of of losing in Washington and uh, we're going to have a Republican out of the state of Washington in the United States Senate when it was like a 15-point race to Edgar Winter up there, <laughs> Patty Murray. And, uh, there were just all sorts of things that turned out to not only, look, if, if it's a photo finish, I get it. But if you're predicting a blowout and it's a photo finish, that's a little bit different. If you're predicting a blowout and it is a blowout, in the other direction, that's something else entirely. And then when you find out that you had information to at least suggest that the blowout you were predicting is likely not going to happen, that at best you could hope for is a photo finish in your favor, and you're still telling your audience that it's a blowout, you're not, you're not wrong. You're lying at a certain point, are you not? If you're telling your audience what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear, and those are two distinctly different things. If you're telling them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear, you're doing a massive disservice to them, and I wonder if there will be any consequences for it. I doubt it. I doubt it. I, You know, you think back, to, pundits have been wildly wrong in the past all throughout history. Remember... I think it was 2012. It was 2012, and it was in Ohio when the Romney people were freaking out about Ohio. Going, no, 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 no. We're going to win Ohio, and then we're going to win the presidency. And Fox called Ohio for Obama, and Karl Rove was on air at the time going, you can't do that. No, no. He was insisting that this was the wrong call. This was it. This was that. And this was the other thing. He was actually believing. He was basing it on data, but he was wrong. He was wrong. I think his punishment there was uh, that he wasn't on Fox for a little while. But at least he was coming at it from an honest perspective. He's a guy who knows the data. And he said, no, 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 there's places that are still out that could easily come in and you shouldn't make this call. Then you have the other pundits out there in earlier races who just simply, like the Frank Luntz, there's nobody bigger out there in cable news than Frank Luntz. So just come on and tell you exactly. He's comfort food for the soul, except for when it matters. And he'll come out there and he'll tell you exactly what you want to hear because he can find, he's one of those guys who will find the silver lining in anything and you want to hear the good stuff, so he'll find it. Oh, you know, there's some bad stuff too, but the good stuff far outweighs it. No, he does it because he just, he wants the check, he wants the gig. It's money for him. Other people do it for the attention. Dick Morris used to be... Uh, fairly accurate kind of guy now he's just he's what he is you name all these people that you see on tv they tell you exactly what you want to hear same thing at msnbc by the way and in the liberal media it's not just conservative media 
Beto lost by a country mile in Texas. On his last two elections, Beto O'Rourke spent $200 million to, to lose by a lot. Stacey Abrams, it wasn't even close. At least she conceded this time. It wasn't even close for her. But she ate up like $100 million this election cycle. Thank God it could have been much worse for Republicans had Democrats not been throwing good money after bad at these people. Across the board, I don't expect liberals to hold their liberal pundits and the organizations who sucked hundreds of millions of dollars out of them for losing causes like Beto and Stacey Abrams. I don't expect them to be held accountable any more than I expect conservatives who were taken to the cleaners to be held accountable either or to hold the people who lied to them accountable either. That's the saddest thing. If you can come through all of this and make no difference, make no changes. That's the saddest thing. Just looking at uh, some of the results and everything, as of this moment, it looks like the Georgia Senate race is going to a runoff. 96% in. And this could change, of course. Anything is possible. And 0.5% separates Raphael Warnock, Herschel Walker, Warnock at 49.2%, Herschel Walker at 48.7%. If you're sitting there and you're a normal human being, you're going, well, uh, if that holds, Warnock wins, right? But that's not how it works. Even if it doesn't benefit Republicans, I've just got to say, the concept of a runoff election, the way that Georgia runs its elections is stupid. It's just stupid. You got to have 50% plus one vote in order to win. Okay, that's fine. It's usually not an issue. But when you have a third, a three-way candidate, now they, the libertarian got like 1.6%, doesn't really fully matter. Never really a factor, except that it ends up costing a ton of money to go through the rigmarole of having a runoff election. And they say, well, this is a more accurate reflection of the will of the people. Most of the time, the runoff, people already voted in November. The runoff election has a lot of people who simply don't show up. Turnout is generally lower for a runoff election because it's a month later. And it's like, hey, man, uh, we already voted. So you really only get the people who are more hyper-partisan. It's more a test of what the party can do. How many Republicans can the Republicans turn out? How many Democrats can the Democrats turn out? It's not really a reflection of what it's supposed to be. We want to represent democracy, 50.1%. Well, if 100,000 people, fewer people vote in a race where the margin is 20,000 votes... If 100,000 people, fewer people vote, you're not really getting an accurate reflection of the will of the people because they don't feel like going and voting. I guess they do if they don't feel like going to vote. It's just stupid. If you win, you win. In Alaska, they've got a three-way race. And whoever gets the most votes, that's how it should be, whoever gets the most votes wins, period. There's no runoff between Murkowski and Chewbacca. That's not how you, I don't think that's how you pronounce her name. But I wish it were how you pronounced her name. Her name is spelled, uh, it's Kelly T-S-H-I-B-A-K-A. But it's like it's pronounced Chewbacca. Chewbacca, however you want to pronounce that. I don't know. I've heard it pronounced 
the first time I heard it pronounced, I stopped. I literally stopped and looked up at the television. I said, did they, did they just say Chewbacca? Like the senator's a Wookiee? Like, what the hell is going on? And then I saw the spelling, and I was trying to figure out how the hell you got anything that sounded like Chewbacca out of that spelling. But whatever. Brett Favre's name does not spell Favre. <laughs> it's Favre. But call it, it's pronounced Favre for some weird reason. It's one of those rare instances where you pronounce the letter after the other one first, but you pronounce both. Screwed up. But... She is currently ahead in the Alaska Senate race against another Republican, Lisa Murkowski, the incumbent. This is one of those races that will be uh, widely watched. It's only 75% reporting, again, because why can't people in Alaska? Maybe they froze to death. Maybe that would explain it. But she's sitting at 44.4%. Lisa Murkowski is sitting at 42.7% of the vote. There's a Democrat also ran who's sitting at uh, 8.5%. But if Kelly Chewbacca gets the most votes, she becomes the next senator. Either way, the next senator from Alaska is going to be a Republican, either the incumbent Murkowski or the challenger Chewbacca. The difference is that Murkowski is a squishy, moderate, sides with Democrats on a lot of things Republican, whereas Kelly Chewbacca says that she won't be. I says says she won't be because I don't know her and we don't have a record on her. She's new and I hope she's as good as her word. But uh, when it suits her needs, Lisa Murkowski swore six ways from Sunday that she was as conservative as they come to. So don't ever trust the word of a politician. Trust their actions. Period. End of story. It's a sad commentary that we don't know who the hell it won there, that we still are sitting at 96% of the electoral votes in uh, Georgia, that we're looking at other races. Let's see, the uh, Arizona Senate race, they still can't count out there either. Why? I don't know. But uh, Mark Kelly's at 51.4%. Blake Masters is at 46.4%. And only 66% are reporting. 66%. How do you get to 66%? I feel like me and a Texas instrument watch calculator could have gotten to 66% by now. Especially since they don't do the counting. It is straight up, feed it into a machine and read the numbers. But uh, that's where they are. Blake Masters could still pull it out with only 66% of the vote in. Who knows how things can go. It's way too close to call and way too early to call. It's just screwed up because why? Laziness, incompetence, you take your pick. I don't know which. They're also, I mean, you also have to factor in the fact that uh, they get paid for this stuff. We don't, so. 72% of the vote in in Nevada. And right now, this could be, if it ended right now, but God knows, it's only 72% reporting. Adam Laxalt, the Republican, is at 49.9% of the vote, and Democrat incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto is at 47.2% of the vote. I do like this one. The third place, there's a a libertarian who got 0.6% of the vote, pulling in so far big 4788 uh, total votes. Somebody with no party preference named Barry Lindman beat the libertarian. That tells you how strong the libertarian party is in this country. 
I uh, beat him uh, by 0.1% of the vote. He's got a good 6,085 votes. And then they have this option out there. The number three choice for a United States Senate for the state of Nevada is none of these candidates. None of the... How many times would I have availed myself of that option were it on our ballot? None of these candidates pulled in 1.1% of the vote. 9,645 Arizonans or Nevadans to this point. It could, it will go up. It won't go down. <laughs> but it, it could go up. It should go up. Have decided that they don't like either one of these candidates. So we shall see. But right now, Laxalt is up by a quick off the top of my head math. Roughly 22,000 22, votes with, again, still only 77% of the vote in. How do you get to 77? How do you wait this long and you're still only at 77% of the vote? Give me a budget and challenge me to do faster, and I will do... There's no way you could do worse. There's no way you could do worse. It's wildly incompetent. Now we're going to turn our focus to some of the good news out there. It's interesting. We'll see how it plays out, but uh, there's, we'll have, there'll be plenty of time because I know that, like the debate raging right now, the political class—it's amazing that so much of what I do for a living is populated by children. It really is, and it's children who know better. Yeah, every child knows better. You know, every once in a while, I'll be sitting in one room and I'll hear a from another room and one of the kids will start crying i know exactly what happened somebody had a toy that the other one wanted or what it wasn't responding to it and they'll fight they'll throw something sometimes they'll smack each other on the arms they have done that uh, a few times not too many but a few and it's part of human nature and it's what parenting is designed to sort of weed out frankly you spend a lot of time weeding it. Like you try and teach them the good things, but you also have to stop them from doing the bad things. And so you have to have a talk with them. Why did you do that? And they're crying. And the, the crying is fake. Neither one of them could hit really hard enough to do anything. But they come little crying coming out. Uh, Quinny hit me or Bailey hit me. He won't put her feet on me. He does put her feet on me. Blah, 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 blah. And you got to play peacemaker. And you got to make them apologize. And they, they both start, I'm sorry, as they're crying, and they hug it out. And, like, you look like a couple of uh, drunken college kids. Uh, you know, okay, I get it. It's funny, but they're apologizing, and they're both upset. And then you say, all right, now go ahead and play again. And immediately, they're like, oh, all right, well, let's go, let's go. It's over, it's forgotten. There are so many of the uh, pundit people, the... Uh, columnists, radio hosts, podcast hosts, cable hosts on both sides of the aisle who just simply don't care. They won't learn anything from this. And they immediately started uh, the Twitterati. This is all Trump's fault. Is there some truth to that? I think there, it certainly needs to be an exploration of that. A certain amount of this is Trump's fault. He did raise $100 million for his political action committee and only spent 15 um, he seemed to think that just showing up and doing a rally was enough. When real question is, if he hadn't done the rallies near the end, he, you know, as much as he excites the people who are excited by Trump, 
He excites the people who dislike him too. There are a lot of people who dislike Trump. Did he influence people to vote the other way? Did he influence some Republican voters to not vote? We don't know. But I think Donald Trump's time would have been better spent and money would have been better spent being spent, first of all. But I think that it uh, it would have been better spent on ads. The rallies were about Donald Trump as they were about any of the candidates he was there to allegedly support. And so, you know, teasing, I'm going to have a big announcement on the 15th. Okay, you know, how about you just deal with the issue at hand? It doesn't have to be about you. And if I had my biggest complaint against Donald Trump is that he makes everything about him as part of his charm and the novelty of 2016 when he first ran was that. But it's not 2016 anymore. It's enough. We want results. We don't, you know, just punching the media in the nose is nice. I love it. I do it. But it's not enough. Not enough from a guy who was president of the United States. And so if he could have gone in and and been magnanimous and made his rallies about the candidates he was there to ostensibly support, then maybe things would have been different. But that's not who he is. And there are a lot of the pundit class saying that Donald Trump is too... He helped a lot of these candidates get the nominations, but he didn't help them get across the finish line. And that's true. I, I ascribe to that belief that a rally is nice, but it would have been nicer to drop $10 million in TV ads in an effective ad that doesn't have, that has something to do is only exclusively about the candidate at hand or the Democrat attacking the Democrat at hand and not even featuring Donald Trump. It didn't happen. What's the point in raising that money? The next election is always the most important election. The immediate election is always the most important election. And so if you're planning on 2024, you're doing so to the detriment of 2022. That seems to me to be what Trump did. That being said, there are a lot of people in the punditry class who have set up, uh, maybe bought a small condo in the uh, rear end Trump Tower who are now going to try to pretend that they didn't live there, that they are not, you know, a part-time resident there. And it's going to be difficult for them. They should face some kind of serious consequences. They're going to pretend to criticize him, but they will droolingly and slovenly cover his announcement. I'm all for it. If Donald Trump wants to run again, fine. But right now, my support is more toward Ron DeSantis. Why? Because Ron DeSantis won. He won four years ago by, what, 30,000 votes. A very close race. And he not only won this time by one and a half million votes. Let that sink in. One and a half million votes. My God, it was huge. A huge victory. To win by 30,000, and then four years later, one and a half million. You got 4.6 million votes to Charlie Crist, former governor Charlie Crist, 3.1 million votes. That is massive. More than that, his victory was in places where Republicans don't win. Miami-Dade County, he won by a lot. It's a 70% Hispanic district that Democrats could always count on. I remember the election of 2000. All those East Coast 
counties in Florida were where Al Gore was saying, we need to sue, we need to do this, we need to make sure that every vote out of these ones count. They're all, with exception of one, they're all red now. With the very small exception of one. I can't, it's just north of Miami. But uh, it was huge, huge swatch. There's actually one, two, three, four, five counties. Five counties in Florida. There's a lot of counties in Florida. Five of them that Ron DeSantis didn't win. Five of them. It's amazing. It's a huge turnaround. And it's because of what he's done as governor and how he's done it. I like that. I like that. Plus, Ron DeSantis, they always say Ron DeSantis, so he can run in, in another four. He can run in 2028. No, he's term limited as governor after this term, which means he'd be done at 2026. Two years off is a long time in politics to be forgotten. Can't afford to wait. He's going. His time is now. Chris Christie's time to run for president of the United States was 2012. He didn't run. His moment had passed in 2016 when he ran. He wasn't also ran. He didn't didn't last very long. You have to run when it is your time, and you don't always get to choose your time. And Ron DeSantis' time seems like now, given this, given the fact that he not only turned the whole state red by a ton and would definitely carry Florida in a presidential race, there wouldn't be any reason you'd save a ton of money not having a campaign in Florida. But he also got Marco Rubio, a big victory there. There was a chance that Marco Rubio was going to lose. Marco Rubio won by a ton. Not quite as much, but still by more than a million votes, a million three hundred thousand. That's the power of having somebody at the top of the ticket that draws people out to vote for them rather than somebody runs runs out to vote against the other people. So personally, I would like to see Ron DeSantis run. I would like to see, and who, look, if Donald Trump somehow wins the nomination, I would vote for him. I will vote for the Republican for president. I don't care who it is. I just think that at least as of now, until Donald Trump shows me something different, Ron DeSantis is the better candidate by a lot. The better candidate matters, coattails matter when you're looking at you know control of the house and the senate they matter grand scheme of things i hope to god republicans get one or the other houses of congress or both preferably but right now ron DeSantis is the guy for the top of the ticket in my mind until trump can demonstrate that he can be about a cause as much as, maybe not more so, that might be a bridge too far, but as much as he can be about getting attention. Maybe I'm wrong. Go ahead and hate me for it. Be mad at me for it. But like I say, it's my job to tell you what I'm thinking. And that's what I'm thinking. You, you want something to look at good, look at Florida. In the House races down there, Republicans did exceedingly well. They did what they could to flip the uh, the the House to Republicans. They did what this funny because there's a piece. Where is this? An MSNBC blog. <laughs> God. God bless MSNBC. GOP's Florida dominance is all about gerrymandering. They ran a live blog on election. MSNBC does. And bless their little hearts. 
This is by somebody called Jahan Jones. Jahan Jones writes for the Readout blog. So when you're writing for Joy Reid's blog, not her old, you know, transphobic, homophobic blog. She's got a new one where she pretends that her old one didn't exist and NBC News is cool with it. But they're saying Republicans did so well because of gerrymandering. Um, now, granted, Republicans did redraw the districts in there because that's what happens. And in blue states, Democrats redraw districts. It's amazing to me how these Democrats look at what uh, they're complaining about. Gerrymandering, gerrymandering, gerrymandering. They look at it in Democrat states and they see no problem with it whatsoever. None whatsoever. But Ron DeSantis, like I said, all Republicans kicked the ever-loving crap out of Democrats in Florida. It wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. Rubio, 1.3 million vote victory. DeSantis, 1.6 million vote victory. That has coattails. That makes a big, big difference. Democrats could not have campaigned harder against Matt Gates. They accused him of sex trafficking. They accused him of being a child rapist. They accused him of everything under the sun. They investigated him as such. They leaked that they were investigating him and such. And then it was released that, okay, we didn't find anything. We didn't. We didn't. But they'd already convicted him in the media. They were throwing money at his opponent left and right. He squeaked by with 67.8% of the vote. Up and down the dial, there were three Democrats to come out. Let's see, there's six, seven Democrats out of, well, yeah, 28 districts, seven Democrats. That's huge. They flipped districts. They flipped districts that Democrats won by a lot before or after gerrymandering, popular Democrats. It's huge. There is room out there for this. There is a way out there for victory for Republicans. You just have to be willing to find it. You have to be willing to work for it. You have to be willing to fight it. And you have to be willing to recognize that at some point, maybe your distinct wishes for that way forward aren't necessarily the right ones. Whatever that way is, you decide it for yourself. I'm not going to tell you who to support and who not to support. I'll tell you what I think and who I am leaning towards, but you draw your own conclusions. All I can do is lay the breadcrumbs out there. You choose which path to take. But for me, at least right now, today, the day after, in the wake of this, the pathway seems pretty clear. All right, that is enough from me. Don't forget about patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast. Sean Parnell interview coming up next, and I'll say goodbye. So here's Sean. And it's a rare treat. We don't do guests very often, but every once in a while, I figure there's a brain out there worth picking, and this brain is definitely worth picking. It's my buddy Sean Parnell up there in Pennsylvania. He is uh, a guy who follows this business uh, better than anybody up there in the state. And uh, while looking northward, and you just go, what in the hell is going on there? How the hell could they elect Frankenstein? I thought, let's pick his brain to see what was going on, plus around the world, around the country. Hey, Sean, how you doing? Hey, Derek, good to be back with you. Thanks for that very, very kind intro. I well, also get Sean's books, Outlaw Platoon, the huge <laughs> bestseller, and the Eric Steele thrillers. I don't read fiction. I don't even listen to fiction um, in the audio form except for Sean's books. So check them out. Um, 
what the hell, man? We talked last night for like a half an hour, and it was a different world. We were talking about 8 o'clock. And now, this many hours later, I guess 14 hours later, 15 hours later, it's a different world. And Uncle Fester is the senator-elect from the state of Pennsylvania. What the hell happened? (laughs) Well, uh, bad things happened, clearly. Um, Ultimately, Derek, I think that Republican leadership in, in Pennsylvania really needs to adjust their way of thinking. And... The reality is, is that John Fetterman over overperformed Joe Biden, right? And now Joe Biden will tell you that 81 million votes, most popular president in American history, even more popular than Barack Obama. Um, he, Fetterman overperformed him in key areas in Pennsylvania, and Oz underperformed President Trump in heavy Republican areas in Pennsylvania. And the reason why I say that Republicans need to adjust their way of thinking and and the conventional wisdom that if, you know, the opposing parties in the White House, well, Republicans are going to pick up seats in the midterms. That was all turned on its head with Act 77, which is Pennsylvania's no excuse mail-in ballot law. And, And the reason why it was turned on its head is nested within that law is an automatic opt in program. And which essentially gives the Democrats a floor, because as we all know, Democrats, utilize mail-in ballots far more than Republicans. And, Derek, they built that floor during the 2020 presidential election, the highest turnout election in the history of the country and, indeed, the state of Pennsylvania. So this is why Fetterman was able to outperform Joe Biden in critical areas like Allegheny County, Delaware County, Montgomery County. Um, Like, for example, in Allegheny County, President Biden got 60 percent. And last I saw, it looked like Fetterman was upwards – close to 65 percent democrats looked at where they were in 2020 and said let's add four percent it's a simple numbers game and republicans haven't woken up to that reality just haven't is there anybody sounding the alarm about what's going on in pennsylvania because sitting there and in shock and going oh my goodness i can't believe this is happening is one thing doing something about it is, is something entirely different yeah well you're exactly right what it requires. First of all, to answer your question, I, I think me. I, like I'm talking about this. I've been. I have been vocal about Act 77 since I got into this political game. I'm a political outsider, dragged into it, kicking and screaming in 2020. But anyone that had any sort of political mind at all could look at Act 77 and say, "Wait a second. I don't know that this is a very. I don't know this is a good thing." You know. Now we want everyone to vote. It's, it's not a matter of that, but it's also about having pragmatic election integrity measures to make sure that everyone's vote is secure. Right. And so look at the numbers in Pennsylvania. Republicans are at like a huge disadvantage with, with regards to registration. Democrats have a 520 plus thousand person voter registration advantage. There are 1.2 million independents in this state, but Democrats statewide, right? They don't need a single Republican vote to win. They don't. And, and frankly, they don't need that many independents either. So the margin right now in Pennsylvania, Derek, is what, 60,000 votes for Fetterman? With a razor-thin margin like that statewide and a, and a voter registration advantage of 520-plus thousand people, if independents don't show up in force for Republicans, it's a real, real difficult path. So priority number one for the party in this state is we need to, like, really revamp our leadership here and focus on, one, 
making up that voter registration deficit. Florida did it. Look what happened to Florida. What, four years ago, Derek, it was a purple state. And now it's as deep crimson as you can possibly get because DeSantis did all of these things. You close the registration deficit, you know, close it, and then focus on a robust early voting and mail-in voting program. Now, that's tough. That's a tough sell to a lot of Republicans, but it's a reality that we have to wake up to. Right, sitting there and, and arguing. You could argue, look, if there's a law that I have, uh, let's just say a tax law that I have a moral disagreement with or a real principle disagreement with as far as you shouldn't be able to deduct X, whatever it is. If it's on the books and I've done X, I'm going to deduct it. It doesn't mean I'm, that doesn't make me yeah, a hypocrite. Right. Like I'm going to follow the law. <laughs> if mail-in ballot is the way that it is, then damn it, Republicans need to get better at that game. They can try to change it all they want, but if it doesn't change the reality, their desires don't change the reality on the ground. Yeah, right. And look, I'm talking about like if Republicans ever want to win again statewide, these are the things that they have to do. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just this simple. I mean, obviously, this is there's a constellation of different things, Derek. I mean, so this what we just talked about is one. Obviously, candidates matter, right? You have to have great candidates. Those candidates also have to be well funded. Doug Mastriano, I mean, had an incredible base in Pennsylvania, but I think Josh Shapiro raised $30 million. Like, Doug Mastriano raised three. It's like people need to realize that, like, in order to get your message out and expand beyond your base, you have to raise gangbuster money. It's like, I don't like that. I wish that there was less money in politics, but it's the truth. You couldn't in Pennsylvania, you couldn't turn on your TV or go on YouTube or listen to the radio without being told what an amazing, wonderful, moderate Josh Shapiro is who's willing to work across the aisle. Well, the fact is, Josh Shapiro is every bit as radical as Betterman. He just fakes it a little bit better. (laughs) Well, he's able to string together a coherent sentence. True, true. does help. But Mastriano, he can be a good guy. Being a good guy doesn't make somebody a good candidate. Was he a good uh, yeah. candidate? Well, look, he had a great base. Um, I think Mastery. I, I hate. I hate being a Monday morning quarterback. Having experienced this myself, both in a run for the House and the Senate, so I, I don't like doing that. I don't. It's, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, and running statewide in Pennsylvania is really, really difficult for a lot mm. of different reasons. But yeah, I mean, I think Mastriano. Look, in a very contentious primary, right, with like a 100 people for governor, which, again, this is a reflects poorly on the leadership of our party statewide. But but with a with a primary with 100 people, Mastriano still got over 50 percent of the vote. So he had an extraordinary base. I think where he struggled was he didn't have the money to get his message out. And he was just bludgeoned to death for eight straight months about what an extremist he was. Oh, he's QAnon. Oh, he's going to with a stroke of a pen is going to make abortion illegal and, and and when you can't fight back and offer people a counterpoint you lose it's mm. no different than having air cover in combat like if you're going toe to toe and you're outnumbered 10 to 1 on the ground you could have you could be a you could have a pretty strong unit right but eventually you're going to get overwhelmed and it was no different for Mastriano he had a strong base a strong unit but he got overwhelmed and, and you know, on the media and with air power, and he couldn't overcome that ultimately. We're talking with Sean Parnell about what in the hell happened up in Pennsylvania. Sean, um, Dr. Oz, for some reason, 
the fact that he called a vegetable platter crudite was a, <laughs> a, 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 a an attack. It sounds it sounds stupid, honestly, that somebody would sit there and do this. But I got email after email from the Fetterman campaign saying, "I don't eat crudite. I eat vegetable platters." And pictures of himself <laughs> holding up vegetable platters. I'd never seen anything so stupid make such a big be made such a big issue of. But it se- it must have worked. That and the carpetbagger charge against him <laughs> seemed to have worked or something. Was was he a uniquely bad candidate? He didn't strike me as a uniquely bad, not particularly conservative, but he didn't strike me as a guy who was out there uh, not able to string a coherent sentence together. Well, okay, so so first first, let me just say this. Even after this what this slog of a campaign, I still don't know what the hell a crudite is. Like, I, and, that, <laughs> I, and you're talking to somebody that was like wired into politics and stuff. I still don't know what it is, and I think that that's not, that's not a good thing for Oz. It makes him seem like he's an elitist snob or something like that. Here's here's the thing with Oz. Like he's great on TV. I think he had strong debate performances. He's articulate. Um, here's the problem: you have 20 plus years of being on TV advocating for things that are diametrically opposed to the conservative cultural fight. One, that's a problem. So it made people, the base, especially in this state, feel like he was inauthentic. And and authenticity in today's body politic is the coin of the realm, right? And so for a lot of base Republican voters in this state, it, it felt like Oz wasn't authentic because he just learned a lot of these slogans conservative slogans like yesterday and there's probably some truth to that i think he was i think he's i mean god he's a better candidate than fetterman you know what well, i mean he would have been so, a better candidate so than fetterman but so are my cats. Just, yeah, so. yeah yeah well look i mean look ultimately the the whole he's a rich elitist snob with 10 houses and not from pennsylvania and i'm sorry but in a state like pennsylvania and I mean, probably like this in a lot of other states, but especially in Pennsylvania, if you ain't from here, you're going to have real problems. You're going to have real problems. And that attack landed on him, and he never really had a good response for it. Was there any honest media about Fetterman? Forget the, putting the stroke aside. The fact that we know that as lieutenant governor, he showed up to work maybe uh, you know 40% of the time. The job he did show up to do, he, he worked four to five hours a, a day on to preside over the Senate. The only thing he really seemed to enjoy was being on the parole board where <laughs> he gleefully tried to release as many people, violent felons from prison as possible. Yeah, that seems yeah. to me like I heard about it here in Maryland. Granted, I, I'm in the business. I follow the news. But something like that. It doesn't seem like it could escape the public. Did they just not give a damn? Just like they looked at it with a stroke and said, yeah, he can't string together coherent sentences. He's not up to the job. But he's my guy. You know, he makes me look pretty standing next to him by proxy, so I'm going to vote for him. Oh, well, where do I go with this? I mean, <laughs> yes, yes, look, the, the media in Pennsylvania especially, but also nationally, did an incredible disservice to the people of Pennsylvania. The, the fact of the matter is that Fetterman had a stroke prior to the primary and concealed that from the public and then won the primary when, you know, I think at his primary speech, I think his wife said, oh, it's just like a, you know, like a little blip or something like that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. 
and then he assumed his constitutional duties as lieutenant governor shortly thereafter, and then come to find out months later in a debate with Oz, what, like a week before Election Day, that he could barely string together a sentence. Clearly, he's still struggling. And, And talking as someone who's experienced a brain injury, I know how difficult the rehab can be. So I, I, the media, God, I mean, Republicans always have a problem with the media. If you if you go in, if you have an, if you want to run for political office, you have to go into assuming, go into it assuming that the media is going to be against you. Right. But this goes back to why it's so important to have gangbuster money because you have to build your own media apparatus to run for office as a Republican. And as much as that sucks, it's just the way that it is. Just to uh, illustrate what Sean knows, what he's talking about, while he was in Afghanistan, I don't know, what was it, 400 and some odd days of uh, yeah, combat directly, <laughs> one after another, and you had the the traumatic, you had a skull fracture in the middle of a 15-hour firefight or whatever in the as leading the 10th Mountain Division. And, uh, yeah, you didn't, <laughs> reading your book about it and hearing you talk about it, it's like, yeah, you know, my skull was, it was some fluid leaking. Like, no, that's that's pretty important fluid. <laughs> and you you didn't seem bothered by it. It was, that just tells you something about about Sean and why you should read his book. So you, you know of what, you're not just a, some partisan hack trying to make fun of somebody with a, a brain injury. You know that he can't, work you can't just plow through it it's not like a pulled hamstring where you you just go well eventually it'll sort of sort itself out you have to make conscious effort to do something about it yeah. and he's not yeah it's 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 a very difficult injury to recover from you know if there was a silver lining to my injury is that it happened when i was in my 20s and so uh when you have a brain injury when you're younger there's this this uh, this concept or philosophy of neuroplasticity and and that just basically means the brain when you're younger can figure out ways to rewire itself so that you can be functional again but the problem is that as you get older that becomes more and more difficult fetterman is is not a spring chicken anymore so yeah i hope that he makes a full recovery i do um but the fact that it's been six months and he's still struggling uh to put sentences together it, it just makes me wonder if I mean, he has the wherewithal to do the job uh, in the Senate for six years, but that's a moot point because it seems like the people of our Commonwealth have spoken. And I'm not sure people realize that there really isn't a mechanism to remove a United States senator aside from death or resignation. It's not like you can uh, recall them unless there's real scandal involved. They're not going to be expelled because every other senator will not vote for it because unless they find themselves in a situation where they could be expelled. So, like, even being in a coma, you you won't be expelled. The people of Pennsylvania could, God forbid, I don't wish anybody ill health, but they could find themselves without representation, half their representation in the United States Senate, should something go wrong. And it's he's got a propensity for things to go wrong. Sean Parnell... Uh, find him on Twitter, find him on Amazon, get his books, and uh, pick his brain. It's it's harder now that his skull has healed to pick it, <laughs> but it's it's still definitely worth the journey. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks, Derek. Take care. All right, if it sounded different, that's because that was from the radio. That's enough for today, I say, I say, I say. I will see you again tomorrow, hopefully with more results and certainly more analysis. Thank you for listening. See you then.